This episode of the Golf.com podcast is brought to you by the USGA. The USGA and RNA received comments from more than 22,000 golfers in 102 countries as they reviewed the rules of golf this year. For more on the changes that are expected for January 2019, visit usga.org. Hello and welcome to the Golf.com podcast. I'm your host this week, Josh Burhau, and our guest is Conrad Ray. He's led the Stanford men's golf team for the past 13 years, and in that stretch, he's produced 23 All-Americans and won a national title in 2007. Conrad, thanks for the time. Great to be with you. Most people know you as Stanford's men's golf coach, but I don't think many know you as the man who broke a 1-1 tie in overtime to send the Austin High School boys hockey team to the Minnesota State Tournament in 1993. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, I don't I don't know if that's uh, you know, part of my legacy, but I great memories of uh of growing up in Austin, Minnesota and playing a lot of sports and and especially that trip that we made to uh the state high school hockey tournament in Minnesota. If you grew up in Minnesota, you know how big a deal that is and um it was I was lucky. I still have visions of that that shot from the blue line handing about three skates and two sticks and somehow going in the net against Oatana, but uh uh, some great memories there for sure uh, growing up in the Midwest. Yeah, so the the Austin Daily Herald uh, Googling helped me find that. But I will say programming note here for our listeners, Conrad and I are from the same hometown in southern Minnesota. I've never met him in person, but we have a lot of the same connections, small town connections, as you would guess. So we will not get too southern Minnesota based with this talk, but had to bring that up. Um, yeah, for sure. We we could go off the rails for that yeah. for an hour, uh, just talking about Austin Austin stories and, and uh, Spamtown USA, no question. So one one more topic on that, though. You did mention in that story I read that that goal was the best sports moment of your life, uh, even looking back on it, and that was a couple of years ago. Now, you've won two NCAA team ch- national championships, once as a player, once as a coach. So that still is your greatest memory? Well, I would say I'd characterize it as my, my most personal memory. Yeah, I, I think, you know, with me involved, I – I've had some. I've been really fortunate in in sports and in golf and and uh, growing up to just have be on some great teams and be around some great teammates. But um, you know, just just based on the the moment, I would say that that was uh, pretty unbelievable. We were playing in front of a packed house at the Met Center in Minneapolis before it was torn down for the Mall of America. But uh, uh, the the afternoon it was quite. It was actually kind of funny because the Southern boys, Oatana and Austin. Uh, were playing in the first game of that session. And then shortly thereafter, I think it was Hill Murray and um, another big powerhouse school in Minneapolis meeting for their sectional game. And uh, the place was packed and we, we skated to a one, one overtime tie. And uh, it was just in the Austin high school hockey team had never uh, been, well, hadn't been the state high school <clears throat> championship for a number of years. And so it was a neat moment for me personally, but um I tell you, uh, coaching a, a national championship, you know, I would say as far as the team goes and being part of a group is definitely uh, up there for me. Um, that, that, you know, being part of a team when I was a player here at Stanford was really special as well. But I was also carrying a lot of luggage, so I felt like I was in, I was part of it, but I wasn't there in the moment um, making those putts and, and winning that trophy with guys like uh, Noda Begay and Casey Martin. So... Uh, you know, all different occurrences, but all three special and, and uh, you know, definitely great memories for me uh, in my career, for sure. So let's get more into golf then. 
you kicked off your season at Stanford, uh, I think just earlier this month. What was the summer like for you? Do you recruit? Do you have time to relax a little bit? Are you working with guys? What's that like? Yeah, you know, I think uh, speaking for all college golf coaches out there, <clears throat> excuse me, um, we, we run, you know, we run pretty much 24-7, 365. It's a busy job. Uh, we're kind of one of those sports, I think, in college golf, uh, you know, top t- D- uh, D1 tier programs that, you know, you're not big enough to really probably have a huge staff uh, behind you. I have one assistant coach. Um, we have a person that helps a little bit with our operations. But other than that, um, it's it's just a couple people running the team. And then on top of it, uh, the team is one of the few NC2A sports that actually plays kind of all year round. So we have a fall schedule and a spring schedule. Uh, we have we take uh, kind of the winter break and finals session off uh, after fall quarter. Uh, but the guys are still training and on campus, and, and we're helping them with that. Uh, and then in the summer, uh, we take on uh, Stanford Golf Camps, which is actually the largest collegiate golf camp in the country and a place that we love to see young junior golfers really from all around the world uh, spend some time on campus and, and learn some facets of the game. Uh, layered in on top of that are our recruiting trips and um, and then somewhere in there trying to be a good dad to three little girls and a and an awesome wife at home too. So it's a, it's a full-time gig and, and uh, keeps me on your toes. And I, I love the fact that every day you wake up uh, as a college golf coach, especially at a place like Stanford, uh, it seems like there's something new to tackle and a new challenge to think about. So, uh, you know, definitely a busy, busy job, but, but um, wouldn't do it any different. You know, golf, golf recruiting is so fascinating to me just because it's not like you know, like a football team where you're out there recruiting 15, 25 incoming freshmen for the following year. I mean, you have seasons where you get, what, one to four maybe coming in? Yeah, the max we'll probably ever take is three. Uh, it just depends on the cycle. And um, at our place at Stanford, it's unique too because I always characterize it as fishing with a bow and arrow, not a net, um, because of the academic standards that we look for. You know, really oftentimes over – well, you know, close to 100% of the time, whether or not a kid is on our list or off our list begins with the academic conversation and where they're at with their SAT testing and their grade point average and the courses they're taking and the school they're at. So we spend a lot of time in the office researching that and then creating a list and, and, and uh, combining that with um, high prowess in golf. And, and believe it or not, uh, you know, the, the pool kind of self-selects for us in some respects. Um, it's amazing when you when you put kids through that tight filter in both of those areas. Um, there's just a couple kids, or maybe a handful of kids per year, really that we see in the world that kind of uh, have the qualities that we're looking for. So when we get down to that point in time, we we're pretty aggressive and we try to actively uh, make sure that those kids end up at Stanford and that it's on, that Stanford is on their list. So sometimes you you know some years we might sign or be able to get at academically two kids in the top 10 in the national ranking. Uh, in some years, they're well down the list, but we try and maximize that effort and that output. You know, how has, uh, this is your 13th year now, right, as Stanford head coach? It is, yeah, How has season. Okay, how has recruiting changed for you over the time? I'm, I mean, social media, everything you see out there now, uh, how is that different for you? Well, I think uh, something that our sport is dealing with right now, I was going to say battling, but I, sometimes it works out, um, you know, is this idea of early commitments. Um, and, you know, it's unique, too, to golf, I think, in some respects, that when a, when a top-level 
a high school golfer makes a verbal commitment to an institution, basically most of the, the other coaches that are recruiting that kid go away and go look for another kid um, or another player. Um, in other sports like football and basketball, I think it's common knowledge that if a, if a top-ranked halfback you know, gives a verbal commitment, let's say, on the football side, <clears throat> um, a lot of schools will continue to recruit that guy right down until the till signing day. And hence, uh, all the media that we see around that and the excitement of where that student athlete is going to pick. In golf, it works a little different um, oftentimes. Um, but I think this early commitment uh, issue is something that the NC2A is looking at. I think that coaches battle it a little bit because, you know, oftentimes you're in a situation where um, a school is making an offer to an eighth grader even or a ninth grader in high school. And, uh, I think everyone in the situation and watching the situation realizes that so much changes between when a kid is in eighth grade and when they're ultimately a freshman in college. And uh, there's a lot of maturity that goes on, maturing that goes on, a lot of variables that can happen, coach leaves, uh, things change with the program, whatever it might be. So those early commitments are something that I think is point and center in the conversation right now in college golf recruiting. On top of it all, too, I think in our sport, the NC2A, sadly, is not kept up with the, the speed uh, by which these kids are committing. So for a number of years, when I like when I first started, the idea of official visits were a real thing. Um, and that's a process by which a, a student athlete basically is allowed five, a maximum of five official visits to institutions around the country where the, the school actually pays the bill flies them in, shows them a weekend, shows them what the school's all about. That process is uh, still intact, but um, for the top prospects, many of them have made a decision prior to when you're able to do that, do that official visit. So um, it hasn't really kept up with the timing. Um, and so that's, that's something I think that hopefully the NC2A is considering and understanding that if they moved up the process of the official visit, I think it would curb and hedge a little bit of the early commitment process by which now m most candidates, most student athletes and their parents are footing the bill, traveling around, uh, looking at schools on their own dime um, and uh, feeling some pressure actually to make a, a really early decision when they maybe don't want to. You know, I've read a little bit too that Stanford has some of the best golf facilities around and as if the weather wasn't good enough to attract high school kids there. Uh, can you talk to me a little bit about what you guys have? Yeah, well, we're excited about what we've built over the years. Um, you know, I, I think that it's we're really quick to point out to all the prospects that look at our place that, um, you know, Tiger Woods spent most of his time on a little half acre uh, piece of grass hitting striped balls at, at bad targets. So we want to make clear about that. But we we do think that facilities are a key piece to our recruiting. Um, we've built um, we started our project about 10 years ago. Uh, it's called the Siebel Varsity Golf Training Complex. And then about uh, two years ago, um, we were able to add uh, the Varsity Golf Clubhouse at Stanford. So we have a, a, a building that houses both golf teams with locker rooms and meeting space and kind of hangout space. We have a, a technology bay, which uh, allows us to do indoor to outdoor coaching, um, housing our TrackMan system and V1 and force plates. It's a kind of a one-stop shop, if you will, for golf development. Uh, and then the facility itself is 20 acres. It was designed by Jay Blasey, uh, who was formerly with Robert Trent Jones Group. Um, and Jay's a great young architect in the space and helped us design a concept basically where our facility 
uh, prepares us hopefully as best as possible for the tournaments that lie ahead. So our motto is practicing to play, not just practicing to practice. And the idea is that, you know, finding situational um, practice opportunities, slopey greens, uh, uh, different grasses, different sands, um, you know, a tight lie to an elevated surface, stuff like that around the greens. Those are all things we try to replicate in our facility and within our design. And uh, we have six, um, six green complexes that all have different characteristics and a big um, putting green that basically can handle two teams practicing their putting at the same time. It's about 25,000 square feet. Um, and so we're really proud of the space we've built. I think that a big reason for us is obviously recruiting. We, and we don't want to get in a situation where we do have the ability maybe to get the top prospect into school, but he's deciding Stanford is not the place for him because the facilities don't match up. So um, we've been really fortunate with our facilities and super thankful to the benefactors that help make it possible. And um, hopefully it'll be something that we'll, we'll rely on for years to come. And you, yeah, like you said, the facilities have changed, obviously, since you went there as a freshman. But for you, coming to, uh, coming to California from a small southern Minnesota Catholic school, that's obviously quite the change. Uh, what was your transition like, and have you have you used that as an example to uh, lure any potential recruits? Yeah, I, I mean, I remember that process vividly. I, I, I uh, was a late fresh, a late add to the Stanford. You know, I was the only freshman on the team, late add to the the, the roster. I was basically a walk-on, a preferred walk-on. Coach Wally Goodwin, who's a Hall of Fame guy, gave me a chance that I maybe didn't deserve. Um, but I was—I just—I dove in the deep end, and uh, it was a massive transition in my life. I mean, I—and uh, you know this as a fellow, you know, Austinite, and you know it's a—it's a pretty homogeneous small place, and and to get out of that loop is um, is a big deal. And not—not um, not that it's a bad thing, but for me, it was a real life changer to come to California and meet people of different walks of life and different backgrounds. Um, in fact, last night, just ironic how this goes. Um, last night I was with my freshman year roommate at the giants game and we were comparing notes about how we were both, you know, just totally, it's like we were from different planets when we arrived our freshman year. He grew up in, in East LA and Hawthorne and Compton, uh, no real dad in the picture. Mom worked three jobs to get him to Stanford. Um, you know, it, it, he's, you know, tough as nails type of guy, super successful now in San Francisco. But here I was from kind of uh, uh, small town USA, um, you know, very homogeneous place. And, uh, you know, it's just for us to meet and to spend time with each other changed both of our lives, really. And um, so, you know, that transition is huge. And, and we talk about that a lot. I think that's part of the goal we have when we recruit kids to Stanford is just to mention to them how um, eclectic the place is. Um, how they'll definitely meet people and what, you know, broaden their horizons that they maybe would have never otherwise met. Um, and also too, I think there's a lot of value in our roster, just those 10 or 11 guys that we carry to, to have them be from different places and different walks of life. I think it adds to the, it adds spice to the soup, if you will. So um, it's a, it's a neat experience for sure. So we'll get more into that here in a little bit, but I want to wrap up on one topic here. Uh, Walker cup was in your state. I know you had a guy on each side. What was that like, and were you there for it? I was, yeah. I went down Sunday and enjoyed a, a great walk around LA Country Club. Um, what a what a cool experience! One of the you know one of the highlights that I've had as a coach uh, watching two guys, Maverick McNeely on the U.S. side and David Boot on the 
GB&I side represent their countries, and their and uh, it's just really neat to see the show that they put on. The USGA never disappoints with their championships, and and the Walker Cup was no um, no surprise. It, they had a huge turnout in LA with the galleries, and there was a lot of excitement. And the US um, I've won handily, but it, there were some great matches, and uh, really proud of of both Maverick and David for making those squads. Let me pause for one quick second for a message from the USGA. Combining golf and life is tricky. I know I have a hard time doing it here in New York City. How do you fit one into the other? Ask the USGA, and they think it's pretty easy. It's called Play 9. Nine-hole golf is time-friendly, unwind-friendly, friend-friendly. It's conducive to just about every aspect of your busy, busy life. Golf after work, golf before you pick up the kids. It's possible when you play 9. You can even post your nine-hole score, and it counts directly towards your handicap. There's a lot to love about this game, and when there's less time to play this game, the USGA says, play nine. Learn more about options to play in your area by going to usga.org play nine. So when you have guys competing at that kind of level, like, you know, future President's Cup, future Ryder Cup players for maybe some of them, do you see them kind of a different energy from them or a different kind of vibe that you don't see in regular Stanford events? Well, I think everyone has, that's human nature, right? I think when you surround yourself, you know, I know Maverick, it respects his teammates um, and is it's all uber competitive as an example on our squad when we internally qualify and that type of stuff. Uh, that's going to be a different experience though, than showing up and looking over and you're seeing, you know, Scotty Scheffler on one side and you've got Cameron Champ on another and you've got all these great players around you. I think you up your levels. Um, and that's, that's something that, you know, some guys deal with better than others. Um, I definitely uh, saw how exciting it was for both guys to be around um, guys that they, they know that they're not the best player. Well, you know, it's just, it, you kind of go from a, a smaller pond or a bigger pond to a smaller, how do I say that? I guess a, um, a smaller pond to a bigger pond. Uh, and, and both these guys did manage that really well. And I think that's the thing that is kind of the um, intangible piece about a lot of these guys transitioning from the college game to the pro game as well. You can't predict how they're going to manage that sometimes, um, even though they might have all the right tools, you know, the physical capabilities, the mental capabilities, the record in college. It's just really hard to predict how that transition is going to go. Justin Thomas is a great example of that. He was a great college player, but I don't know that if you took a poll of all the top D1 coaches that watched him play or recruited him, that they would necessarily pick Justin Thomas as the guy that might win the player of the year, you know, after next week. So it's, um, it's, it's just hard to, hard to predict, but it's neat to see how some guys really up their levels. And, um, you know, I know the level of golf at the Walker cup, for example, um, is, is very high and it's impressive and it's, you know, you could probably put a sample of PGA Tour players out there in a similar situation, and you wouldn't see much different. You know, speaking of Maverick, uh, he's announced he's turning pro, which, you know, he didn't seem, at least, you know, publicly, that he was really set on that decision over the last couple of years. Are you surprised at all by his decision, and did you spend much time with him talking about this over the years? Yeah, I spent a ton of time. I, I'm not surprised about his decision. I think... Um, you know, I think sometimes not making a decision comes across uh, <clears throat> as not wanting to make the decision, but actually I think it's the opposite in Maverick's case. I mean, he uh, 
he was a mechanical science and engineering major here, uh, and he focused on decision analysis, actually. So I think he's such a well-thought-out kid that he definitely um, took the idea of having the pros and cons on a list to a whole new level, and he really wanted to make sure that he was making the right decision, whether that's uh, playing in some professional events as an amateur, spending time talking to um, uh, former guys of ours that are out there trying to play, um, you know, just really understanding what it's all about. And I think he's a smart enough kid to realize too that, or has realized that, you know, he really wanted to make sure to make the right decision because it's, it's sometimes not even about the golf on the professional ranks. It's about managing the lifestyle, being on the road a lot, um, having a good team around you. And all those pieces I think were things that he was thinking about over the last, uh, you know, month or, or I'm sorry, eight months or a year. Um, and even beyond that, um, you know, and I think to his credit, I think he realized too, he's a mature enough kid to see that uh, he, he didn't, he wasn't lacking an opportunity on the other side of the coin either. Obviously his dad, Scott has been super successful. They're a well-respected family in Silicon Valley. He's got a great degree from Stanford. Um, I think he's a, he's a thoughtful, uh, you know, interested kid. So he has a lot of own, his own ideas. Maverick does in terms of what, you know, a, a business that he might run would look like or, um, the relationships that he could leverage, all of those things I think were part of his decision. And so ultimately though, I think him, him playing pro golf is something that he really has wanted to do. He just wanted to make sure it was the right thing. And, uh, I think it's going to be exciting to see how he does. Um, you know, he's kind of fashioned himself throughout his career as the underdog, um, a bit. And I think that that's a more comfortable role for him than it is maybe, um, being on top of the heap, although he managed, um, being number one in the world. Uh, for for quite a long time on the amateur ranks really, really well. Um, when he came to Stanford, he he was an underdog, you know, and he, he saw that in his work ethic, and, and he wanted to prove people that he could really play and, and to go from where he was his freshman year as a, a walk-on on the Stanford team to graduating as, as arguably the top draft choice out of the college game. Um, it's pretty impressive in those four years. You know, like Maverick, you've had no shortage of big-time players come your way. Uh, just in the last few years, you know, Patrick Rogers comes to mind. Uh, Cameron Wilson won the NCAA title in 2014. You probably, as coach, have to wear a lot of different hats when it comes to guiding guys and making choices that are, you know, correct for their respective careers. So what's that process like? Yeah, it's, a, you know, I take it seriously. I think, um, first of all, I, I feel like it's really easy to have opinions and sometimes like injecting those opinions without uh, it being the right time and place or the trust of the player at hand is dangerous. Right. Um, but I think that a lot of, you know, I've been really fortunate, knock on wood, a lot of these guys that are coming to our place are thoughtful and they've got great backgrounds and awesome support network already, and they make good decisions. And so for me, oftentimes that process has been just trying to ask as many good questions as provide good answers, if that makes sense. So, um, but like you said, yeah, I think at my role, and I think too, I don't really have skin in the game other than I want to see him succeed, right? And I think that's an interesting dynamic, um, which I think you have to work through. I think a lot of people that have opinions about whether it's managers or even mom and dad, swing coaches, that type of thing, they um, they have other interests in mind sometimes. And not to say that our guys are, or, or the people around them have that, had that, but I think it's just something you have to be wary of. Um, but it's been really, it's been really cool to be to have a seat at some of those tables and, you know, feel like you have hopefully some impact on these guys and and um, 
you know, and that's what we talk about when we recruit kids to Stanford is that we just want this to be the ultimate platform for development. And it's not the end game. I think that's the, in recruiting, what we want to be clear about with our, with the kids that ultimately get here is that this is not the end of the road. This is just the start actually. And so we want you to use Stanford and all the, all about it um, with our program and all the different variables to, uh, to get you to the next level in a good sort of way. So, but it's cool. I'm, I'm, you know, I think too, I think, um, one of the things that sometimes makes it difficult for Stanford student athletes is that they have so many options. Um, we talk about that with our guys, like sometimes a bunch of options aren't, isn't great. You know, there, there are, there is something to be said for having a one track mind in certain areas. And, and that's something that we talk about too and think about. So, um, but to see these guys go out and go make their mark in the pro game and, and even the more rewarding stuff for me is maybe even outside of the pro game, just being good people and, uh, the guys that don't decide to play pro golf, getting good jobs and being awesome contributors to society, that's that's rewarding as much as it is uh, seeing guys on the pro side. So let's go back in time to 1994. You're in Stanford, and that's the year Tiger Woods comes. What did you know about Tiger at that time? Yeah, so Tiger came in my sophomore year. Uh, you know, 93, I was the only freshman on the team, carried a lot of luggage, and we won the national championship that spring in 94. And then Tiger arrived, and, and it, it was quite actually a fascinating process. Um, Coach Goodwin had kind of a grand plan in mind. He had uh, two awesome players in Nota Begay and Casey Martin kind of leading the way. Uh, he, I think, saw their prowess and their ability, and so they decided, knowing that there was a good chance that Tiger Woods might come to Stanford because he had made early indications of that in high school, they decided to redshirt um, their junior year. Uh, and so basically they were going to have a year off, come back their senior year, kind of get warm back up in the saddle. And then their senior, their fifth year was going to be Tiger's freshman year. That was kind of the grand plan. And so um, I came in their senior year. So uh, they ended up coming back um, by chance. Coach Wally Goodwin ended up finding a transfer by the name of Will Yanagazawa from UC Irvine. He transferred in, had this phenomenal year. Had some great play from Steve Burdick and Brad Lanning. And lo and behold, the year before Tiger got there, we won the team championship at Stonebridge, uh, McKinney, Texas. And it was a little ahead of schedule. Um, had a phenomenal, you know, just amazing year. I got to see all that, soak it up, play a little bit, but not in the championship. Um, and then Tiger came in, and, and so the, the game was on. Um, the only issue with that is that Oklahoma State uh, at the time uh, – had arguably one of the all-time great teams that Oklahoma State's ever fielded um, amongst many. And so it was kind of a clash of the Titans throughout the year. I think uh, trading, you know, number one ranking um, back and forth most of the year. Uh, and sure enough, they we, we ended up uh, at Ohio State being tied with Oklahoma State first time ever after 72 holes of stroke play that there was a team tie and uh, that year at NC2A at uh, the Ohio State course. And so we went out in a playoff, um, and uh, Oklahoma State ended up beating us. Um, it was their number of putts that could have gone in either way. The, the other interesting little note is that uh, Oklahoma State actually played four, uh, four guys against our five in the playoff because they had this phenomenal last round. They didn't think that they were going to get um, in, in the final or in the playoff. So Coach Holder um, sent one of his players, Leif Westerberg, on a plane 
back to Europe to play the British amateur. He didn't want to miss his flight. And so they, they only had four guys. We had five. They still beat us. And it'll go down and, and, you know, kind of if you're really a golf nerd as one of the all-time great co- collegiate golf rivalries that year um, in 94-95. So um, pretty cool stuff. And for me to be, you know, witness to some of that um, and then to spend a couple years with Tiger, uh, you know, definitely changed my life. Phenomenal uh, experience and, and just uh, magical to really see him do what he does, you know, what he does and what he did so well back then. He, he won 11 times in two years. Um, you know, just recently Maverick broke his scoring record, but, but that stood for a long, long time. And, uh, you know, it's hard to, hard to really comprehend how dominant he was back then. And, you know, some of those guys that you played with, uh, it's funny to look back now, you're 20 plus years, Casey Martin played on tour for a little while. Now Oregon's head coach. Uh, I'm sure you know him very well. Notable gaze all over the golf channel and then obviously Tiger and then you're at Stanford. So looking back, you know, is it weird to think where you guys are now when you were just kids? Yeah, really, it really is. I mean, we chatted about that the other day. I think, um, you know, you've got Brad Lanning, who I mentioned, he's actually Casey's assistant now at Oregon. Um, To add to that list, you've got a guy, Steve Burdick, who uh, runs college golf fellowship around the country. So he's close to college golf. William Nagazawa is uh, running um, the the ping efforts in on the Asian tour. So he's close to golf. Um, but it was a really unique group of guys and a bunch of different backgrounds. And, and I guess, you know, as we look back on it, Coach, Coach Goodwin is in his 90s now. I think that's going to be his long, you know, standing legacy was just being able to combine a bunch of guys from different backgrounds and put them all on the same team and some, and some special stuff happens. So, um, and they all, they've all stayed close to it post, uh, post years at Stanford. So really neat to think about and, uh, and kind of ironic really. So what was that group like together? And did you guys, I mean, did you guys get along well and do you have any good stories about just being kids in college? Yeah. I mean, probably too many and some I can't share on our, uh, in our conversation, but, uh, we had a blast. I think that's the thing I always remember is that we had a ton of fun. Didn't matter if you were uh, a freshman walk-on like me or a, you know, multiple-time All-American like Nota Begay. Everyone kind of was on the same page, and we had a, we just went about our business. I think, uh, you know, the thing that that I realized too is that when you get you know kind of a good group like that together, the the moxie and the the attitude, uh, you know, everyone for a common goal, it's really really powerful. Um, you know, I. Coach Coach Goodwin wasn't the most technical coach, you know, but he had a good a good way of kind of keeping us all on our you know grounded. Um, in fact, you know, we were laughing uh, about how he would like randomly come up with like two shot penalties for stuff that just shouldn't happen. You know, like if Noda dropped a cuss bomb, you know, Coach Goodwin would just give him two shots and qualifying, and then you know make him deal with it. And that was just something Noda could never deal with. Um, but we had a lot of fun, um, you know, n- never short on pranks and shenanigans and, and, uh, you know, and, and at the same rate, um, if things weren't going well, I mean, I, I told, I told my team the other day, it wasn't uncommon for us to even a practice to like have a shoving match, you know, because some guy wasn't paying up his debts on the putting green or something like that. You know, our guys now are very, they're very, uh, you know, and I think maybe a little, it speaks to the generation, but it's not, it's not as confrontational. Right. And so, um, that uh, you know, living in the trenches type of mentality was something we definitely had, and and uh, 
it definitely was a brotherhood, and I think a reason why we've still all stayed close uh, to this day. Uh, did Tiger dress as dorky as Nota Begay says he did? I've seen that several <laughs> times, and I remember hearing that several times. So what was Tiger yeah, kind of no, like as a college no kid? I mean, that's that's what's funny, you know, to be really open and honest. I, I mean, for all of Tiger's former teammates and guys that really knew him when he was just coming up, um, you know, he's the biggest nerd of them all. Um, he's the guy that would tell a joke and in the room and, and he'd be the only one laughing, you know, um, he, uh, he definitely came to Stanford, um, you know, needing, needing the cool factor. It's amazing what Nike and all, you know, what some, what a bunch of success does. Uh, he's, he seems to be cool, you know, when he's presented that way, but, um, he's a nerd at heart. We, we definitely gave him a hard time. I think, uh, you know, this was before he had, um, LASIK surgery, but he, he had these really thick kind of, uh, glasses that he wore, and his his nickname on the team was affectionately Urkel, you know, from the old TV uh, show. So we gave him a hard time, and and everyone, you know, it's not like it's not like he didn't give it back either. So um, we all had a, a blast with that. So you mentioned earlier carrying luggage, and I think I got to give the hat tip to uh, Golf Digest for this story. But I think you mentioned before Tiger found a way to not carry luggage. Is that right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, there was a time. I think that's a that's one of our famous stories that's been told and retold a few times. But um, you know, my version of it is I actually drove again. I was a van driver on this trip, but first uh, his first freshman tournament, my sophomore year, he had um, coach stuck him in there. They were heading off to New Mexico to play the first event of the year. Traditionally, kind of the young guy on the trip um, manages the bags, getting them out of the van, getting them on the cart. You know, starting to head to the the terminal and uh, tiger popped out of the van and just walked in and, you know, said, okay, who gets the bags? And they're all looking at him like you do, bud. You know, he's like, I don't want to get the bags. And so Noda, you know, kind of put him in line and says, no, you need to get the bags. And tiger, I think said, well, that's fine. But what if I win? How about you, you know, how about you get my bags the rest of the year if I win the tournament? And sure enough, tiger goes out. I think he shoots a final round 67 or 68 and wins by a couple. And so needless to say, there wasn't a lot of luggage carrying um, by, by Tiger the rest of the year. But uh, the sad part about that for me was that um, I was kind of the next guy in line. So that added to my workload, but uh, we had a good laugh about that. And, you know, it, it just showed that, uh, you know, no matter how good you are, I think this group, our group that we were in, they kept, kept guys feet on the ground for sure. Does Tiger ever make it back to Stanford? He does. He's passionate about Stanford. You know, he loves all the sports teams. Uh, I obviously feel bad with all the stuff that he's gone through over the last number of years. Um, but, you know, for me, it's, I, I have to tell you, he has been really supportive of our team. Um, anytime he passes through the Bay Area, he tries to reach out and make an effort to see the guys, spend time with them. He actually has got, I, I would say he I don't know if he ever would. I was kind of joking with him when he's got some time off here with injury. He could be my volunteer assistant, but um, he's got a little coach in him. You know, is I think his dad and and all the coaching that his dad did of him shines through in Tiger. And uh, so it's really neat to see him provide some insight and be kind of the elder statesman. And, and I tell you, um, you know, I can tell the guys something um, three different ways, but if Tiger Woods says the same thing, um, they're going to listen to him, you know, so – uh, that's pretty cool for me when he's had a, a, a time to spend with them and just share some of his experiences. And uh, it's really powerful when he breaks it down and talks about how he approaches scoring and what's made him great over the years. And um, and that's that's something hopefully our guys will carry forward. 
And, you know, even without knowing players personally, um, how does the phrase Tiger Woods Stanford alum help with recruiting? I mean, there's kids, especially ones from overseas probably, who they may, they may not know every promising player to ever come through Stanford, but people know yeah. where Tiger went to college. Yeah, that was the first call I made to him when I got the job. And I, and I, I think I owe him a lot for even getting the job. I, I was lucky because I, when I was starting to entertain the idea of coaching and going through the interview process, I think they called a lot of my old teammates and some of those guys that were on those teams and my name kept popping up. Um, and I know Tiger was a part of that. But um, yeah, I mean, that's the first call I made to him. I said, hey, how's this all going to go? You know, obviously you're an icon for Stanford golf. And I just told him, I said, Hey, don't, don't be offended, but I'm going to drop your name. Like it's going out of style. And, uh, we had a good laugh about that. Um, and so, you know, that's what I've done. I, I don't, I think, I think the big thing is for us is just to share, you know, or, or I, I guess to share that information with, with kids, but also to point out that, you know, this idea that high level collegiate golf and high level academics are not mutually exclusive. And I think, there's a lot of programs around the country that want to make that make it opposite of that, um, saying to kids like, "Hey, why would you want to go to a really challenging school? Um, you know, if you're gonna if you, all your goal is to go play the PGA Tour, I kind of say to kids and families, "Hey, if you want to go be number one in the world, you're gonna want to have a Stanford degree or a great academic background behind you." And so it's a different, you know, it's a different argument, a different way to put it, but. Um, you know, I think I think when you can have a guy like Tiger as a person you can reference and say, hey, it's, it's done done pretty well by him, um, it's very powerful, no question. Okay, so I have a few more for you, then I'll let you get out of here. But uh, just wanted to wrap up on talking briefly about, you know, players moving on from the Stanford program and going on to make a name for themselves on tour or wherever. How much do you stay in contact with these guys after they leave Stanford and play pro golf, regardless of what tour it happens to be? I think quite a bit. Yeah. I mean, I make a, I don't want to intrude on their lives and a lot of them are, you know, go through, um, you know, they, they, they find their path. Uh, but I think that the best situations for me are when I get that kind of random call from a guy like Cameron Wilson, who's prepping for Q school or, you know, Andrew Yoon calling me saying, Hey coach, I'm fired up. I just got my card, you know, and then we have a great conversation. I mean, the, those relationships are strong. And, um, and, and just, as I mentioned before, I think sometimes, as someone that's just an observer and a fan, I can offer a perspective maybe that's um, one that they know is, you know, from the heart and not driven by other motives. And, and uh, I think that helps guys sometimes. So, um, but yeah, I I think, you know, we always tell kids that whatever school you decide, it's not a four-year decision, it's a 50-year decision. Um, And that's when it comes to bear is when those relationships stay strong and, and you can still be involved and, in their path uh, forward. Yeah, I've always wondered about just kind of, you know, if people think it's stepping on toes. You get Some of them have such an entourage these days where they have their swing coach and their fitness coach, and then do college coaches feel like, uh, you know, it, it's kind of they've done their part and now they have to let them move on and kind of spread their wings? Or do you guys not have a problem sending a text or letting them know, hey, you got a hitch here, hey, you're doing this, and kind of still yeah. communicating with that? Yeah, no, I, I, I let the player drive that. Um, some people are definitely want more of my opinion on the physical piece and their scoring pieces than others. Um, some people like, you know, they, they do transition and move on and find other people that they're, but I think the relationship is still strong. And, you know, I, you know, to me, 
I think my best my best work is when I have a player, and it's it's more than just the golf, right? That relationship, and that's what I try and build, and and that's where trust is based on and in. And um, you know, I, I think if I was living and dying by the scores of the team of of what my team shot, I'd be going crazy too. So, uh, you know, it's more about relationships. It's more about being good to people and and um, providing them a lot of support and and encouragement. It's got to be quite the task. Uh, following up with these guys too. I mean, you have players at different pro levels, and what's the uh, secret for you to follow everyone and keep tabs? And what twenty three All Americans I have under you is that correct? Yeah, I think that's the number. Um, you know, hopefully, hopefully a few more this year. We're looking forward. I I uh, been lucky though. These guys have been great students and great players. I you know Twitter and social media. I I, I never knew that I'd be uh be on all platforms, but I'm out there and I'm watching and and uh, following these guys. Um, you know, the tricky part is when like Dodge Kemmer, we've got a graduate that's going through the Japanese qualifying school right now. So, you know, digging those scores on the internet are always fun, um, and interesting, but, um, yeah, we keep a good, you know, a good, a good record of them. We, we track our alums on, um, we have a team dedicated website, which is really neat that we've built over the years, a guy named Bob Stevens, who's a wonderful member here at Stanford Golf Course has, has really helped us there and is a gem, um, uh, you know, kind of an asset of our program that doesn't get enough recognition, but we've got a history page there. So we've got, we track alums as far back as we know and have them update their page and stuff like that, stanfordmensgolf.org. Um, but yeah, there's, there's, it's, it is hard. It's, there's a lot of guys out there and a lot of guys still trying. And um, this time of year, all the, all the alums are either happy because they don't have to go to Q school or cringing because a big week is ahead of them or a few weeks. So um, it's an exciting time of the year. All right. Well, we can leave it at that. Thank you, Conrad, for joining. Thank you for listening. And head to golf.com and subscribe to Golf Magazine and the Golf.com podcast for all your golf needs. Until next time, I'm your host, Josh Berha.